Well, hey y'all, this is Miss Tennessee, and I want to welcome you to The Kitchen Table. It's an opportunity for me to interview incredible human beings from in and around the gay community to help share their light and to give us some inspiration on finding our authentic voice. I hope you enjoy today's special guest, the Miss Coco Peru. Enjoy, and don't forget to like and follow me on Instagram, this podcast, and on YouTube. Well, have a great day. Well, welcome, Miss Coco Peru. Thank you so much for joining me today on the kitchen table. Well, thank you, darling. Well, I definitely appreciate you taking the time and being able to chat with us. And my my whole my whole point of the kitchen table is it reminds me of me growing up and being able to sit at my grandmother's table and talking um, with incredible people and getting to know them and and hopefully being inspired by um, some of your wisdom and advice to help us through all these this crazy time in the world right now. <laughs> so let me ask you something. When yes. you when you say um, on the kitchen table, when you were you actually on it or around <laughs> it? Well, that's it. It, it probably depends on the, the day itself because I uh, was all over. I was a I'm a very imaginative child, but uh, for sure remember sitting beside the kitchen table with my grandmother. Okay. Absolutely, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, you know the one thing is, I mean. Coco, you have been such an incredible inspiration for me and so many. You've had an incredible career. I mean, being, I remember watching you and Trick and Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, and TV shows, Will and Grace. What is what has drag been for you over the years? Um, first of all, I just want to say I apologize for not for this only being audio, but. I have found that um, getting dressed up on a random day is not something um, I look forward to anymore But um, as I've gotten older. But um, I certainly appreciate that you were willing to do it just as an audio. And so what has drag been for me? Um, ultimately, you know, it's been everything that you would expect drag to be. But underneath all of that, for me, it was a very healing uh, it was about healing a part of myself that I had abandoned growing up and learned to be ashamed of growing up. And it's, it was really, drag was the key to me feeling whole again. And um, I, I do believe it was a calling for me because I needed to find my voice. I needed to balance out the female and the male and the yin and the yang and w- drag was a very scary thing to me early on. But once I had read that book about two-spirited people, I felt connected to something that went way beyond just me. And it rooted me and it gave me, um, it gave me the hope that, not even the hope, it was for the first time I felt there was a definition of how I knew I was. I had no role models. There was nothing for me to connect to. And when I read that book about two-spirited people, that really connected me to something that went even beyond being gay. Like I I had already accepted being a gay man, but I still hadn't accepted that effeminate side of me, that everything that I had been working, even in theater school, to, to rid myself of. And when I finally said, oh no, I'm not, 
I'm not going to rid myself of this. I'm going to embrace it. And then I'm going to celebrate it. And that is when I reclaimed my voice and power. That, that resonates so much with me. And um, I am a in baby drag at this point in time. I actually started through this whole life cycle. I'm 36 years old. And, and I hit this moment in my life of who am I? And I, when you were talking about hiding that, um, the feminine side of who I was, I grew up super conservative, um, in a, in a family and drag has been in a way, my savior, Miss, Miss Sissy has been a way for me to, to find that voice that you're talking about. And I, I remember listening to some of the interviews that you've done over the years and you talking about the, the shaman and the two spirits. And I just instantly felt that connection of understanding and it felt incredible to know that there was someone else that was going through that same struggle. And right. thank you so much for saying that. Yes. And I, I, you know, I, in today's world, you have to be so careful about appropriating other people's cultures. And while I respect that, I can't deny that um, books were written about Native American two spirits. And I took the time to go out back when I was very young and there wasn't an, the internet. And in bookstores, I discovered these books and they were the key. You know, there were many different little things that happened in my life that led me to drag. And and I felt like the, the reading that book about two spirited people was the was like the master key to unlock uh, what I what I needed to, and and so when people um, say that drag is silly, or you know, I've heard women complain that you know drag is insulting, and um, I just think, well, who the hell do you think you are? Because <laughs> um, this is my life, and 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 it is that is it is the opposite of what you're saying. It, to me, it was healing. It was wonderful. It was all about respecting the feminine and female and acknowledging that I have both sides within one body. And, um, you know, no, no one can take that away from me. And some, I remember early on in New York when um, th- I would have a straight woman in the audience that would come with gay friends or, you know, they would just open to, you know, when you live in New York, you're open to, you know, different kinds of theater and whatnot. But often women would come up to me and say um, that they wanted to be more like Coco Peru. And I always found that so interesting. Well, it's definitely an interesting topic. Um, You know, it's even from, for example, uh, Jackie Hubba, who created that book, Fiercely You, and, and talks about embracing how she's how she used drag to find her authentic voice. And I think it's become such a um, part of the conversation with women and, and men of, it doesn't matter of your sexual preference or gender. It's all about embracing and finding, I think, like, I think you put it really well with the, the, the yin and the yang, finding that balance to find who you really are and not trying to fit into what you think other people want you to be. Right. And it was only when I really acknowledged the feminine that I felt like my male side actually balanced out as well and became healthier. So for me, it was, it it was a, it encompassed so much. And I, at the time when I started my show, 
talked about a lot of this within my show. And I think that was one of the reasons why it became a cult downtown thing to do was because no one had seen a drag queen talk about these things. And I was not pretending to be a woman. I was talking about being a little boy. I wasn't pretending to imitate a already famous female celebrity. So people weren't really used to the type at that time, weren't really, what I was doing was somewhat new and, um, you know, telling autobiographical stories. And because part of the healing for me, I also knew was that um, storytelling is what connects us all. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's incredible. Well, I guess that, you know, on that topic, um, you know, so many people, there's all these self-help books and all these people that, you know, kind of talking about this, finding your voice. What do you believe are the necessary steps to, to find that, to find your authentic personal power? Oh, I, oh God, that is a huge question. What's funny was that years ago when I was, I, I guess I was going through a, well, I was, I, I guess I shouldn't say, I guess I was going through a depression and this was already after I had created Coco Peru. So my life has been, you know, full of ups and downs, but during one of the down periods, I was reading a lot of self-help books. And at one point I threw the book down and I said, you know what? I think all of these self-help books are just all regurgitating the same message. And my husband said, oh, my God, you have just saved yourself so much money because I had been buying a lot of these books. <laughs> but, you know, I've always been on this quest for answers. So if I found like one sentence within a book that really resonated with me, well, then it was worth it. So I, I think, um, you know, I think being curious is essential to finding your voice and um and so while people have the internet at their fingertips, um, I also think you need to be out there in the world and engaging people and asking questions um, and just trying to be um, authentic. And it's a quest, you know, and it's not that I've even am whole and complete. I'm still on that quest. You know, it's ever evolving, I think. No, absolutely. It's a, it's definitely a life journey. And, and I think that, you know, one of the things that, um, that resonated so much when I was, I was listening to one of your interviews with Christopher Swan, uh, back in 2016, and you were telling the story of how you called that theater company and you said, I'm going to be doing a show in three months and you hadn't even written the show yet. And you talked about how, you were facing and develop, you know, fighting through that fear, you know, of that was kind of ingrained in you growing up and being bullied, and and it was a part of your DNA. And uh, I think that that was such an incredible story to know that, kind of like what we're talking about, is being brave enough to push past the fear, to put yourself out there in the world and talk to people and to um, share your journey. Yeah, and I think also um, fear. And I certainly had plenty of fears over the years. You know, they kill dreams. And so sometimes I have had to set myself a deadline in order to be held accountable um, so that when the fears come up, it, 
you they sort of get brushed to the side because you've got this deadline. So I um, I always encourage people to set deadlines for themselves. And then uh, if they need to let other people know about these goals and these deadlines, then their friends or people they work with, whatever, can hold them accountable. And that often will propel people. And then suddenly you've got a show and you think, how the hell did that happen? <laughs> well, and I think that that's, a, that's such another point of talking about having that community and, um, you know, that sense of a tribe of people that can support you and celebrate you. And um, I know that, you know, for me and growing up in such a conservative environment, that the hardest part about finding that voice was finding the people that loved you for who you were and who you were trying to become and allowing you to not maybe fit in their box. Um, and I, I hear so many, I'm, I'm actually a teacher outside of, um, this world. And I see so many students that are constantly trying to balance that peer pressure of what they think everyone else wants them to be versus what naturally feels good to them. Um, it's definitely a journey. So, um, bizarre. I think the younger kids, uh, have more access to, the world and maybe feel more of a community. Uh, so that's wonderful. But I, I imagine that in these smaller pockets, um, there's probably still a lot of uh, peer pressure to behave and look a certain way. And so it's so unfortunate. And um, I always encourage kids to, it's most important that they feel safe. Um, and uh, well, I don't know what I was going to say. Well, I definitely think that safety kind of when you're talking about that is, is that that's when you, when you feel comfortable and you feel safe in your own skin or in your environment is when you truly begin to show that voice and begin to express yourself the way you're meant to be. Yeah. It was funny when I finally created Coco Peru that, um, I found that a lot of the negative comments that were often tossed at me suddenly just stopped. It, it was almost like I had set this force field into the world of, you know, don't fuck with me. And not even in a, um, in a, I actually, I felt like I was a softer, you know, more gent, more gentle person once I created Coco Peru. But um, I think I just had this aura of finally settling into myself and that even evolves as you get older, but some of the, oh my God, I just totally burped because I'm drinking soda water. Sorry. But some of my, uh, (laughs) I'm just keeping it real. That's right. Just keep it real. Um, Exactly. But um, some of the people that did bully me um, came up, have come up to me and either apologized or congratulated me. And I just found that so fascinating that it was only when I decided to own a hundred percent of myself that all of that bullying stopped. And not only did it stop, but the people, the very, some of those very bullies then, you know, congratulated me. So there's something about, and that, that's what inspired me when I went to Peru and met that drag queen named Coco um, and at the time in Peru, it was so homophobic. 
and you had to knock on the little door to get into the gay club. And yet this drag queen who performed in that gay club was famous throughout Peru and on television. And I just thought that is so bizarre that in this Catholic country, this person who clearly just embraced and puts herself out there, they're responding to it, even the most homophobic people. So I thought that's the power of drag. And that's what I wanted to experience. And I wanted other people to experience as well, even if drag wasn't the vehicle, that we're all responsible and have the gift of creating who we are in this world. We'll get to it. Absolutely. And I, I, I love that you have used Coco Peru to be such a catalyst for, for change. Um, you know, not only within just the art itself and you, um, focusing on your, your one act plays and, um, and, you know, theater, I, I think that that's a credible outlet, but also too, I mean, just the sense of being an activist in our community and, you know, talking about HIV and AIDS and, um, working for all these nonprofits, I think is, um, is an incredible outlet that you've used Coco to create that change through your voice. Yeah, I, I was inspired by the activists, the AIDS activists in the um, 80s and 90s. So they were my, I was too intimidated by all of it to actually be a part of it. I was too young to take on all the rage that they had. Although I had that rage inside of myself. So I think that that's what scared me was that um, I had so much rage bubbling deep within me that to unleash it, I think would have overwhelmed me. Coco helped me unleash it through storytelling. And I could express my rage on stage through this sort of alternate reality. And it, although I was telling autobiographical stories, it just felt safer to me doing it through Coco in a theatrical storytelling way. And I also realized that that, might help an audience feel safer as well um, while dealing, talking about those issues. Um, So the, certainly the AIDS activists of of that time inspired me to want to not only be an entertainer, but to help change the world. Cause you know, at that time too, there were not, there were no real gay characters on television that you could look up to. Uh, and I just knew that was wrong. So my mother w- was always saying, well, why do you always have to write gay stuff? <laughs> I say, because there's not enough of that out there. And I'm determined that there's going to be a world where gay people are on television and gay comedians can be openly gay and it's not a big deal. And uh, drag queens can be on TV. And I-, I envisioned all of that, you know, back when I started this. That's so, I mean, it's, I, I remember growing up and, um, not having any of those icons. I mean, I mean, obviously I, with my grandmother would watch golden girls and see B Arthur and mama's family. And, and I, and I watched all of those shows and remember seeing those incredible women and those characters, but there, like you said, there really wasn't, um, there wasn't really that gay voice that was in the community. And, um, no, the gay voice was the writers. 
you know, and the people writing Golden Girls and all the, you know, so there was a sense, there was a sensibility. And that's why we, we, those, some of those shows resonated with, with us because a lot of those writers were gay and B. Arthur's best friend was a drag queen, you know, so <laughs> there's reasons why we were drawn to certain shows and certain people. We may, it, and it was all very, um, it was underground in a way. Very much so. That's, that's so interesting. Well, speaking of B. Arthur, I um, I know that you did your, um, I remember watching one of your Coco Thoughts while in solitude, and you talked about how you spoke at B. Arthur's memorial. And um, and of course, you did your interview um, with B. Arthur. And I, I just was curious, of, you know, what is the greatest lesson um, that you learned from your relationship with her? The greatest lesson I learned, well, What's very satisfying about having met and befriended B. Arthur was that was the one person or one of the people, but I was obsessed with her as a kid. Mm-hmm. My whole personality was shaped by B. Arthur. I mean, her comic timing was just, it just got into me. And I, you know, as a kid, you, it wasn't like you could go on the computer and find something at the, you know, at your fingertips. You waited for that, you know, movie to come out that B was going to be in, or, you know, every week when she would be on Maud, you, you waited for that moment. And just, she was everything to me growing up along with Barbara and some other women. (laughs) (laughs) But so the greatest lesson was that if I hadn't created Coco Peru, if I hadn't taken that leap of faith, I would have never met my idol, B. Arthur. And so meeting B was a confirmation that I had made the right choice in my life, as bizarre as that choice seemed at the time. That leap of faith led to those moments with B. And so I have found that sometimes you do need to take a leap of faith and that's where the magic starts to happen in your life. And it, it definitely sounds like once you released that, kind of going back to that fear, once you released the fear of, of what people would think and what the world, how they were going to judge you, and you just said, you know what, this is me it seems like the the universe just began to work around you to put it incredible totally, people in your it life. Felt, it, it felt almost sometimes, um, it did feel like magic sometimes. I, there were things that I would intend that I just knew were going to happen, and they did. And it, it, it just, it was a boldness that I had when I was young. And even asking B. Arthur to do that, um, event with me, it terrified me to ask her. And she said no at first. And I was, um, and then I, I made it about that it was going to raise money for gay homeless children. And that softened her because she loved gay people, especially, uh, couldn't understand how anyone could kick a kid out of the house for being gay. So that resonated with her. And she said, yes. And the wonderful thing was that the day after the event, I had to go to her house to return some, some stuff. 
And when she opened the door, she looked at me and she said, we did it. And she, she was so <laughs> happy she had done it. And then she looked at me, she says, I guess this really does make us bosom buddies. Oh. And I, I know. And I just thought, I, I you know, I, I it was unreal. And I, I, you know, I'm having flashbacks to those moments in front of the television as a kid. And it just was magical. Or when my, my mom took me to see MAME and, you know, I saw B. Arthur sing Bosom Buddies and here she is saying it to me. It was a beautiful um, circle, I, I would say, of, you know, it, it completed something for me. That's, that's such a, and I, I will be honest with you and say that this experience of interviewing you is very similar. I, I, I can't thank you enough for, for, for saying that you would allow this. And because uh, I, I truly have idolized you for so long and um, just hearing your story and over the years and watching you has been, um, it's almost a sense of an, an aspiration of someone that's trying to find their authentic voice and um, seeing the power within you has inspired me for sure. So I just, as a side note, thank you again for, for doing this. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled that you feel that way. I mean, that, that makes me feel like I, um, you know, I, again, that's another sign that I, I made the right choice when you know you've affected another person's life. Absolutely. What, what is it, what is something that you wished everyone knew about you? Oh, (laughs) um, what is something I wish everyone knew about me. Well, I do think that people look to me as if I um, have this very glamorous life. (laughs) (laughs) And the reality is um, often the opposite of when I've been out on the road and lifting suitcases and having to get up early and I don't fly first class and, um, you know, some of the hotels I've been put up in have been questionable. (laughs) I mean, I try to get them to, you know, and it's in the contract, but you'd be surprised at some of the places I've had to pee, you know, before. (laughs) And, um, you know, it is not a glamorous life. It has moments, but, um, and, you know, and the other thing is, is that, people think that when you're on a TV show like Will and Grace, you've made, you've made it and you've made a fortune. And the, 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 the reality is uh, quite um, being on that show, uh, you know, that's one week of work. And what I do in that one week, I sometimes make doing one or two show my own shows and people think you've made so much money because you're on television. It's like, no, you're, I'm making like SAG minimum. And so it's funny that they think uh, that being on television uh, makes you rich. It does if you're a regular TV series person, but when you're just a guest star and you're on that low end of the totem pole, you're not getting rich. What it does is it's a wonderful opportunity to work with great people who are at the top of their game. It is wonderful exposure. And I absolutely loved it. Um, so that's why you do it. And you hope it, you know, it, you hope it leads to other things. Um, but really, it's just about enjoying that moment. And then I, you know, I would drive on to Universal Studios 
and park my car. And they would offer to drive me to first when I was first on the show that my, where they had us park was a little bit of a walk to the actual studio where you were not studio, but the, the building where you're filming. And I always refused the ride because there was just something magical about walking through an active working studio and the the tram would drive through it that was the tour of the actual studio and you'd see all the tourists on it and I have done that tour several times and it was very exciting to be on the other side of that tour and to actually be an actor walking through that studio I love uh, that yeah and I never I never ever ever took that moment for granted. It was magic each time I got to be on Universal Studios as a working actor. And so, I mean, it's, and I just think it just goes back to, once again, you just knowing what you want and being authentic and continuing that, that journey of, of self-discovery. And I think that once you do that, that your authenticity kind of magnetizes the things that you want around you and brings those incredible experiences to you. And the other thing I would say that like if, if what I would know, what I would want people to know about me is that um, so for instance, when I was on Will and Grace, I was terrified. I was terrified of forgetting lines, of making mistakes, of um, you're walking into a, a situation where these people have been working together for years. They all know each other so intimately and you're, coming in as this guest and you're trying to figure out how to fit in to all of it. And you're afraid of being judged. And so all of those fears um, are real and they're so deep and they're rooted into probably uh, most definitely my childhood of fear of rejection and all of that stuff and being judged. And yet in spite of those fears, you show up and you throw yourself into it. And that I would say is what I would want people to know. I think some people look at me as this fearless person that has all this bravery. And I don't think I have bravery. I think I have courage to show up. And so I would, that's what I always encourage young people is to um, be courageous. And that doesn't mean you don't have fears means that in spite of them, you still show up. And I think that you have, have shown that so much. I mean, you know, talking about how you signed up before you did your, you know, your first show, My Goddamn Cabaret, and telling the theater that you're going to have a show. I think that that is, that was crazy. That, that's, that, that's just incredible to me. But I, but I also see that is that you're showing, you're showing the world that, this is what you're going to do. And I think that you level up that way. You know, you is, it pushed you to be accountable for that because you wanted it to be great and you didn't want it to fail. Right. Once you get the ball rolling, um, it's like almost like you can't stop it. And there were moments where I thought, oh, I, I started this and now I'm so deep into it. I can't, I can't <laughs> stop it. You know, people are depending on me. I had enrolled friends to help me shop for shoes and hair, and I, I'd never done drag before. And I, back then, you didn't have computers to make flyers, so my friend's mother was making the flyer. My other neighbor was worked at a printer. He was going to print the flyer. So I had all of this set up. And um, the more people that got involved, the more real it felt. And then before mm-hmm. you know it, it was my opening night, and 
my teeth were chattering. I was so scared. But I walked out on that stage. And once you're on a stage with the spotlight on you, you're either, you know, you just dive in. And I think that's a great metaphor for life. Mm. So much so, so much so. Well, as we're getting to the end, I, I wanted to just um, kind of going back to our community and obviously being quarantined and, you know, a lot of our community is about connection and, and being social. You know, what, what do you recommend that during this quarantine that, um, of how we continue to stay connected within our community and our tribes? Well, for me, I did the, um, those cocoa thoughts while in solitude. And so I would, again, the challenge for me, I set this challenge up for myself where I was going to go around my home and just find little things that I could appreciate since I was stuck in my home. And, um, and when I made those videos, I challenged myself where I would turn the camera on, start talking, film it. And then that was it. I wasn't going to give myself a second chance. And being a perfectionist, that was my challenge was that, um, at a time like this, it was more about just connecting with other people that it wasn't about perfection. It was about speaking from my heart. And if someone received it, great. If they didn't, they didn't, you know, it was just putting it out there in the world. And so the response was really overwhelming. And so many people wrote me saying that they listened to those right before they went to bed. Mm-hmm. And I thought how interesting that, you know, people of all different ages at this time basically needed a bedtime story. And that really was beautiful to me. And so, and now I do the Casa Cocos and I've been doing the phone calls where I, I call fans and, and so it's about creating intimacy in a time when we can't be physically with each other. And we're blessed to have phones and computers where we can do that, you know? Absolutely. Um, so I think reaching out to people, I check in on friends, um, you know, just reaching out and, and, the, and being creative in the ways in which we do that. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I, I definitely think that it's a, it's about the human connection and you have been such a great example to continue to keep people connected, you know, through your solitude, um, YouTube videos and your Casa Coco. And um, it's just a great way just to remind us of what we're in this together. Um, so thank you so much for continuing to be that light for, our community and this world and letting us know to not leave couches on the curb. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you just reminded me I need to call because the, uh, one of the biggest culprits is, uh, an apartment building right as you turn onto my street, there's an alleyway behind it. And there, I don't know where all this bulk garbage comes from within this tiny little strip of apartments, but literally you call three, one, one, they come and pick it up, and the next day, there's another whole p- 
pile of bulk garbage. Where is this coming? Unbelievable. There's like, there's a black hole there where it's coming from some other universe, I think. <laughs> just you clear it out and the, the universe provides more. It's just so bizarre. I'm trying but, to figure out how, um, why they have so many couches. I don't understand. Yeah, it's like, where are all these couches and mattresses coming from? Um, but it is what it is. But uh, yeah, uh, I uh, that is one of my obsessions. I love it. Well, Miss Coco, what? Where can um, where can the audience connect with you? What are where? What are you doing? Where are places that our community can can reach out and see they what's going on? They can find me at my website, which is misscocoperu.com. They can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I'm not on TikTok. I have my YouTube channel and I also, uh, they can go to casacoco.live for future shows. The next one will be um, probably in later September. Awesome. Well, thank I you so much again. Thank you well, so thank much again you. for- I really appreciate it. It's been fun and um, thoughtful. So thank you very much. Thank you.